A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This is the Second Amendment, and this is the Gun Guy. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, 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 bang. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, bang, bang. With Guy Ralford on 93 WIBC. Good afternoon and welcome to the Gun Guy Show here on 93 WIBC. We're thrilled you're with us. I hope you uh, had the patience to get through the end of the post-game show there after IU. Actually, IU battled the hell out of Michigan for a half and uh, was tied 10-10. to It was really competitive. In fact, had a couple of different chances to go ahead in the first half. They had a touchdown called back on an offensive interference play. They had a field goal blocked but easily could have gone into halftime three, seven, maybe ten points ahead. But then kind of got beat up in the second half, ended up losing by three touchdowns. But in the meantime, if you stuck around or you're just now joining us, we're glad you did. This is the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. I want to talk about a uh, national discussion that's going on around Indiana's new adoption this year of constitutional carry. And if you listen to the Gun Guy Show at all, especially this year, but frankly over the last 10 years, well, we've been on the air for eight. I guess I can't claim 10. But uh, you know that we've been fighting like hell for constitutional carry, which is if you're new to the show, that's the idea that you don't have to go back to the government and beg permission to exercise the right to bear arms in the form of carrying a handgun when that's a right you already have. In other words, if if the Constitution guarantees you a right to carry a a firearm in public, that is to bear arms, as clearly set forth not only in the Second Amendment, but Article 1, Section 32 of the Indiana Constitution, which, as I always say, is elegant in its simplicity, that is the Indiana Constitution, that people shall have the right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state. There you go. So if you have a right to bear arms guaranteed to you by the Constitution, not only of America, but of the state in which you live, why should you then have to go back to the state and beg permission to exercise that right? And that's what a handgun license has always been. That's why we've been fighting for constitutional carry, or permitless carry, if you prefer that term, for some time. I've personally been involved in that fight for 10 years. I've been talking about it on the radio for eight. And we got it done this year. It went into effect. July 1st, 2022. And throughout that fight, through the whole 10 years, that not only myself, but a whole bunch of really dedicated legislators, people like Representative Ben Smaltz from Auburn and Representative Jim Lucas uh, from Seymour and uh, Representative uh, Peggy Mayfield down in the uh, Mooresville area, Martinsville. Um, a lot of these folks, and, and and I'm leaving a whole bunch of people out. Jerry Tor from Carmel, good friend of mine, and a strong, strong, strong supporter of constitutional rights in Indiana. Throughout the time we've been fighting for this, a lot with the help, by the way. I mean, I, it's not just us. Uh, the NRA. Say what you want about the national leadership of NRA, and I, Lord knows I'm critical. I've told NRA directly, you're not going to see any more money from me until Wayne LaPierre. And the national leadership is replaced. 
I think they've taken NRA a place it never should have gone. I think they've abused the fundraising capacity of NRA. I think they've paid themselves way too much damn money. One of the reasons I formed the two-way project was because of that very criticism. But say what you want about the national leadership, our local representatives right here, our NRA folks who have been on the ground with us at the state level, historically, a guy named Chris Kapaki, Dr. Chris Kapaki, a complete stud on the Second Amendment, Um, and, and other folks here more recently have been awesome. And we've had common citizens, people just who are interested, just show up. You know, Kelly and Avon, our buddy that calls in often here on the show, Kelly's been at every one of those hearings for years. He's not getting paid to do that. He's just somebody who cares. And there are a whole bunch of other people who are right there in the same category. But then I formed the 2A project here a couple of years ago, and that really mobilized a lot of people. And we finally got it done. But throughout the fight for constitutional carry, what do we have to fight against? We had people show up, including a whole bunch of folks in law enforcement, who showed up and said, you're going to dramatically increase crime in Indiana if you pass this. Criminals are going to carry guns. Domestic abusers are going to carry guns. Crazy people are going to carry guns. All these prohibited possessors, quote-unquote, who can't legally possess firearms are going to be emboldened by the idea of constitutional carry and the fact that they no longer need a license to carry, and they're all going to carry guns, and they're going to, they're going to murder people, they're going to imperil police officers, the common citizen is going to be less safe because of constitutional carry. That's what we heard over and over again. One particular professor from Indiana University in Bloomington showed up every year and in a very shrill voice would scream at the committees that she was testifying before about how we were going to be in so much more danger as a society if we passed constitutional carry because all these dangerous people were going to carry guns that's what we heard that's what we had to fight against all these years now we had a whole wealth of statistics from those states that had already past constitutional carry, for instance, oh, say, Vermont, that's always been constitutional carry since there's been a Vermont in 1791, you know, the safest state in the country as far as gun violence, quote unquote, goes, that is gun homicides, Vermont, and it's been constitutional carry since 1791. So we had to fight against all that. We had to fight against law enforcement officers who wagged their finger at, at even Republicans on the different committees where we were trying to get this thing through. Said, you're going to imperil the lives of citizens here in Indiana, of Indiana residents. You're going to imperil the lives of police officers if you pass this. And we kept going up with statistics saying this never happened, this increased threat from constitutional carry. And all the states that have had it for years they, ne- they have never seen this. Why would Indiana be different? Logically, it made no sense. Statistically, it made no sense. Factually, it made no sense. But that's a lot of emotion. Uh, that's a big deal for a lawmaker to look at someone in the eye, especially you know a respected law enforcement officer, and disregard the fact that that officer is predicting an increase in violence if they pass a particular piece of legislation. And Lord knows we even had Republicans cave and turn against us on this. People who had campaigned for years on Second Amendment principles. 
I'm talking about Liz Brown, senator from Fort Wayne. Loves to campaign on sec- on the Second Amendment. She turned out to be our number one enemy on constitutional care. Number one enemy. Far worse, far more destructive, far more negative than any Democrat in the Indiana General Assembly, a Republican. And there were several others as well. So what's been interesting is we've now had constitutional carry on the books here since July 1st. And look, before July 1st, homicides, at least in Indianapolis, were down. But the prediction was for a whole bunch of people in the media. I mean, we had we had Fox 59 reporter Russ McQuaid openly ridiculed me on social media when I testified in favor of constitutional carry, suggesting that when anybody and everybody can carry a gun. By the way, that's not what constitutional carry means. If you're a prohibited possessor, you can't carry a gun under constitutional carry. If you're a felon, you can't possess a gun. You get caught with a gun, you go to prison. If you're under a domestic violence order of protection, you get caught with a gun under constitutional carry, you go to prison. If you've been adjudicated to be mentally ill, you can't carry a gun under constitutional carry. So the idea that suddenly anybody and everybody can carry a gun anywhere they want to carry, where you can and cannot legally possess a firearm, unaffected by constitutional carry. But that's the BS we had to fight against. Again, Fox 59, Russ McQuaid, openly ridiculed me. You know, in his social media post, he, he put quotes around constitutional scholar. No, Second Amendment scholar. Second Amendment scholar testified and then openly ridiculed what I had to say. Again, predicting the doing away with a requirement for law-abiding citizens to go seek permission from the government to exercise a constitutional right was somehow going to make people less safe in Indiana. Well, what's interesting is just this week, uh, a national website, and it is pro-2A, make no mistake, it is very pro-Second Amendment. It's BearingArms.com. And the, and the driving force behind BearingArms.com is Cam Edwards. And Cam Edwards and I used to work together when I did work for uh, NRA TV. And he ended up leaving NRA TV because, because of the various financial problems at NRA. NRA TV imploded, which I'm very disappointed about, by the way. I enjoyed being on NRA TV. I had a weekly spot on uh, on one show uh, there on NRA TV uh, and uh, enjoy doing it. But uh, at any rate, after NRA TV went away, Cam Edwards founded, started BearingArms.com. But what I like about the publication, the website, and the articles that they put out is they're very fact-driven. And here just this week, they put out a new article talking about the, what the statistics show about the effects of constitutional carry. And what they show completely defies the predictions. And again, we're early on as far as Indiana goes, but a lot of other states have had constitutional carry for quite some time. And the statistics so far completely defy what the naysayers were saying about constitutional carry. For instance, they looked they looked at the data in 2020, okay, two years ago. In 2020, we had 16 states that had permitless carry or constitutional carry. By the way, in only the two years since then, we've added nine more states. 
if this is such a bad idea, why have now a full half, 25 of the 50 states in the United States of America, have now adopted constitutional carry? So it's been nine additional states, including Indiana, since 2020. But as of 2020, there were 16 states that had constitutional carry. In looking at more recent statistics and, and where the data take us relative to those states, the average overall homicide rate among the 16 constitutional carry states was less than specifically 6.9 per 100,000 in terms of the number of homicides, was below the national average of 7.5. And that's as to the overall homicide rate. Then they looked at constitutional carry states as to gun-related homicides. That's always important. People talk about, oh, well, homicide data say this, homicide data say that. Oh, okay. What about gun-related homicides? That's what we're talking about with constitutional carry. Again, significantly below the national average, 5.3 per 100,000 compared to a national figure of 5.9. Now, if you want to talk to me about statistical significance, you want to talk to me about how dramatically above or below one number is over another one, hey, I'll have that conversation all day long. My point is the numbers simply don't bear out what all the people arguing against constitutional carry said for years. More importantly, what have Indiana's homicide numbers done? How have they been affected? Have they gone up or down since July 1st? We're now several months into constitutional carry. If we believe the people who were screaming and yelling, waving their hands in the air, talking about how we were going to imperil citizens, we were going to imperil police officers because of constitutional carry, you would think we'd see a significant in increase in Indiana's homicide numbers here in 2022 since we passed constitutional carry. Has that happened? Has it not happened? That's what we're going to talk about when we come back. You want to join the discussion, give us a call as always. We love taking calls from our listeners, 317-239-9393. That's 317-239-9393. Give us a call, join the discussion. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. We're talking about the effects of constitutional carry on homicides and in particular gun homicides in those states that have adopted constitutional carry. And again, bearingarms.com. And again, full disclosure, it is a pro-Second Amendment website. No question. Kim Edwards, guy used to work at NRA TV. Incredibly pro to it. I've had the pleasure of doing multiple shows with him, uh, co-hosted with him during the NRA annual meeting in 2019 on NRA TV. Had a great time. So he is pro two-way, 100%. But you know, sometimes numbers are numbers. Although, we're going to talk a little bit in just a bit about how those numbers can be fudged in some contexts, and we'll get into some of that. But in the meantime, in talking about constitutional carry, they actually brought up, this is a national website, they talked about Indiana. They talked about where Indiana is since Indiana has adopted constitutional carry, realizing that, of course, like many states, we had all these predictions that we were going to go to hell in a handbasket 
because we're going to have all these violent criminals running around with guns. Which, of course, doesn't make sense since it's still illegal for those same violent criminals to have guns just as it was before constitutional carry. But okay, that was the prediction. We even had a, a assistant chief here at IMPD, um, Assistant Chief Bailey, as I recall, Christopher Bailey, came out and said, oh, yeah, this is going to dramatically increase crime because criminals will be emboldened to carry guns. I never quite understood that. That was the prediction, emboldened. It's still illegal for them to carry guns. They still go to prison if they get caught with a gun. But somehow the lack of a requirement for a license would make them emboldened to carry guns. Okay, that was the prediction. So you would think our homicides would be through the roof. Well, here's what Bering Arms had to say about this. And they're talking about Indiana homicides in general and then gun-related homicides in particular. And they said that homicides, as of October 4th, so just a couple of days ago, are down nearly 17%. I'm talking about Indianapolis in particular. Compared to last year's record-setting pace. And non-fatal shootings are down 13%. Compared to just a year ago. In 2019, IMPD, as of October 4th, had reported 122 homicides. And again, we're just talking about Indy now. But i got to tell you, Indy's numbers clearly drive the state's numbers for a lot of reasons. October 4th, 2019, IMPD had recorded 122 homicides. A year later, in 2020, again, two years before the adoption of constitutional carry, it was up to 177. Last year, which is the most murderous year in Indy's history, the homicide total was 202 on October 4th. 122, up 55 from 2019 to 2020 to 177, and then leaps another 25 to 202 in 2021. This year, as of Tuesday, the 4th, 169. The lowest since 2019. Why did this trend, 122 in 19, 177 in 20, 202 in 2021, suddenly 169 in 2022. Now, again, full disclosure, the numbers were trending down before July 1st when constitutional carry went into effect. And, you know, to quote JFK, this is after the Bay of Pigs fiasco, JFK, JFK had a fabulous quote, said, success has a thousand fathers while failure is always an orphan. Right? Anytime anything's going good, anytime anything is going in the right direction, everybody wants to claim credit for it. And I don't want to be that guy claiming credit in terms of constitutional carry for the reduction in homicides in Indy so far in 2022. And I'll guarantee you there are people in the Hogsett administration or IMPD who will point to things they've done to bring those numbers down. They may or may not be accurate. But one thing you cannot say, recognizing that a whole bunch of folks are going to want to claim credit 
you know, one of those thousand fathers of success, to paraphrase JFK, is you can't say the numbers have spiked in the wrong direction since we adopted constitutional carry. You just can't say it. You can't say it. And when you look at the discussion in the media, when you look at predictions from politicians, when you look at those folks who wave their hands in the air, those people like folks from Moms Demand Action and the Gifford campaign and the Brady Center, who all wave their hands in the air and say, oh my God, going to be blood in the streets. Hey, look, there's far too much blood in the streets in Indy and across the state generally, and I'm never going to minimize, I'm never going to minimize that or diminish the impact of it. That's not in me. That's not who I am. And every murder is a murder too many. No question. But one thing you cannot say, given these numbers, is the constitutional carry has had the effect that the naysayers, that the anti-gun, the anti-constitution, the anti-Second Amendment people prognosticated it would have. Hasn't happened. Now, October, historically, has been a very violent month. Things start cooling off, more people are outside, more people are interacting, more people are staying out late. I don't know what exactly the, 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 the influencing factors are. And, and we'll have to go back and look, not only at the year as a whole, once the year is over, but what the trend is going forward. And nobody's doing a victory dance at this point. But it is worth noting, that's my only point, it is worth noting that the predictions failed to come to fruition. They failed to come about. As of now, given these numbers, that's worth noting. Too early to celebrate by a long shot, but it's something we all ought to take note of. In the meantime, we're a little past the three-quarter hour taking a break. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. So, too, we've had uh, our pal Buzz on hold for a while. Let's go to the phone lines. And, Buzz, welcome back to The Gun Guy Show. Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. What you got? Okay. I've heard, I heard earlier this week on this great radio station someone say that the FBI came out and said that only 4% of the law-abiding citizens stopped a crime? Well, according to the uh, Crime Prevention Research Center, their numbers were 34%. And the biggest majority was stopped without even firing around. Yeah. Yeah, and I can tell you exactly what's going on there, Buzz. And But, no, you, you nailed it. Um, and, uh, and you're exactly accurate. Um, and here's what's going on here. John Lott, uh, Dr. John Lott, who's been on this show multiple times, uh, he came actually to Indiana and testified in favor of constitutional carry, which I'm knocked out. Uh, the fact that he took time, traveled here from, I want to say Minnesota. I don't know, that's off the top of my head. That may not be right. But he heads up, as Buzz said, he heads up the Crime Prevention Research Center. And he's a statistician. If you don't know who John Lott is, he wrote the book, um, More Guns, Less Crime, which stands uh, for the proposition and has the statistics to back it up, that in those areas that are most permissive, most respectful 
of Second Amendment rights and permissive in terms of the ability of law-abiding citizens to carry guns, they generally have less crime. Why? Because people are, are able to defend themselves. And, of course, when you put a book out like that and you take that position, you're going to be attacked from all the people who hate your constitutional rights, as John Lott certainly has been over a lot of years. But one thing I like about Dr. Lott is he, he goes anywhere, man. He's been on MSNBC. He goes on CNN. You know, he'll appear uh, in a lot of places uh, where they clearly are going to uh, attack him and try to undermine his credibility and undermine his conclusions. But he goes and fights those fights. And I like that because I do that. I mean, I you know, if I get invited even uh, by a, a member of the media who I know is anti-2A or whatnot, hey, I'll show up. My, my, my philosophy is, you know, if not me, then who? I'll show up. I'll fight the fight. And accurately or not, I have the, the belief, perhaps naive, that uh, I can show up and, and win those battles. Well, Dr. Lott does the same thing. But he's a statistician. And he... Is a scientist, does studies, and he's done a whole lot of them. And by the way, go to Crime Prevention Research Center, go to their website, just Google it, uh, Crime Prevention Research Center or C CPRC, and they're, they're study after study after study on these issues. But one thing he did is he looked at the FBI's, and, and Buzz could not have been more accurate. Buzz uh, said it. He said the FBI come out and said, well, it's very rare. And we heard this, by the way, my client, Eli Dickett, stopped the mass shooting in Greenwood. And I'm very, very proud to be not only his lawyer, but his friend. And much more to come on that. But at any rate, he stepped in and in 15 seconds ended a mass shooting that could have resulted in dozens and dozens and dozens of people killed. And look, three innocent people lost their lives. Dozens more could have. He was one of those people. FBI says that happens 4.4% of the time with active shootings, that a law-abiding citizen ends it. What does Dr. John Lott say and, and the Crime Prevention Research Center? 34.4% of the time. 34.4% of the time. A, a private citizen, a law-abiding citizen stops an active shooting. That's huge. That's huge, and we all ought to keep that in mind. Right now, we're at the top of the hour. We're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And welcome back for hour number two of The Gun Guy Show here on 93 WIBC. We're glad you're with us. As always, we want to take calls from our listeners. Give us a call, 317-239-9393. That's 317 317- 239-9393. Producer Carl will answer your phone call, ask you a little bit about what you want to talk about. And uh, we pretty much we pretty much put darn near everybody on the air, don't we, Producer Carl? We we you know and let, well Carl has three issues in his mind when you call to the gun guy show. He asks himself, Are you sober? Are you sane? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have something remotely interesting to talk about? If, if all three answers are yes to those three questions, then, hey, we'll get you right on the air. You agree with me? We'll put you on the air. You disagree with me? So much the better. We like callers that disagree. That that, that makes for better radio. So don't be shy. Uh, give us a call, 317-239-9393. As you've probably heard me say many times if you're a Regular listener of the Gun Guy Show, we started off, I started off at WIBC just filling in, or even as a guest, on some other shows, uh, uh, doing segments we call Ask the Gun Guy. I still do that on WIBC. In fact, I'm filling in for Nigel tomorrow on Hammer and Nigel, so I'll be in the chair right back here in the studio, uh, 3 to 7, 
p.m. tomorrow with Jason Hammer and co-hosting, and I'm sure we'll do an Ask the Gun Guy segment. Um, but you know, that's how I started here at WIBC, and uh, that's flowed over. I, th- I still believe that uh, we are the only show here on the Gun Guy Show. We're the only show at WIBC that takes calls throughout the whole duration of the show. So we take calls throughout the two hours and are always happy to do so. So give us a call, questions or comments, 317-239-9393. Let's talk a little bit about marijuana. And you may be looking at your radio or your computer or your phone going, nah, it's the Gun Guy Show. It's not the Pot Guy Show. What the hell are we talking about marijuana for? Well, we had news this last week that President Biden is going to pardon, I don't know, thousands, tens of thousands of people who have been convicted under federal law of simple marijuana possession. And he came out with a statement and said he doesn't believe that anybody uh, convicted of a crime merely for possessing marijuana should be in jail or should even to have that conviction on their record because people have been denied employment or uh, uh, not only jobs, but um, otherwise been penalized in their lives uh, for having that conviction on their record. So he's going to issue this mass pardon to all these people. And he's told Merrick Garland, the attorney general, to come up with some kind of an administrative process for uh, pardoning people who simply have a marijuana conviction. So be it. Um, I'm okay with that. Uh, I, I I think it's somewhat ludicrous that marijuana possession is a crime at all. Now, it doesn't affect my life. I uh, decided early on in my life that I didn't particularly enjoy marijuana. I have no moral issue with it. I think it's stupid that it's illegal. It's a plant that grows in the ground, for crying out loud. And if someone were to debate with me as... I've had the discussion with folks that it's less destructive uh, than uh, alcohol, for instance. And I'm a guy who loves a cold beer. I'm a guy who loves a good bourbon with a cigar. So should I be allowed to have a beer when someone else who prefers marijuana shouldn't be allowed to participate in in their pastime or or their form of recreation? Hey, again, it doesn't affect me because I don't use marijuana and have no interest in it. But I have no problem with legalization. But once this news came out that Biden was going to pardon all these people, it prompted a lot of people to ask me, well, what exactly is the issue with use of marijuana or the legalization of marijuana relative to gun possession? Because a lot of people are under the belief That, for instance, if you live in a state where marijuana is legalized, then that has no effect on your Second Amendment rights if you decide to partake, if you decide to be a marijuana user. Or, for instance, if you're in a state that has medical marijuana and you have a medical marijuana card, and that's what a lot of the medical marijuana states issue is they, they'll say, all right, you give your you have your doctor fill out a form or, I don't know, write a report, however it works, that says you have been prescribed marijuana for medicinal purposes. Then you won't be prosecuted if you're caught with marijuana because you, in fact, have been prescribed marijuana. Well, what effect, if any, does that have on your gun rights? A lot of people 
don't understand how exactly this works. And, and let me go into it. And it's something I actually just had this discussion over the weekend. Or not over the weekend, uh, this week, I should say. It felt like a weekend because I took off out of here Wednesday out of Indiana and went to Denver. And I have a son who lives in Denver and have a daughter who lives in Jacksonville, Florida. And my daughter and I both traveled to Denver, and we hung out with my son who lives in Denver. Very disappointed. I have another son who lives in Zionsville, where I live. Uh, we're on we're on opposite sides of Zionsville, but that's where we both live. That's where we both have houses. And uh, and he was originally going to go, but ultimately wasn't able to make it. But hey, I hung out in Colorado, and marijuana is legal in Colorado. And you see it. We were tailgating before the Colts game. That's one of the reasons we went out. We wanted to hang out as a family. I have three uh, grandkids, uh, my Denver son's uh, kids who live in Denver. I got to hang out with them, which was fabulous, but we're tailgating. And you look around the tailgate lot, and there are people hanging out smoking marijuana, which is totally legal in Colorado. But that prompted a discussion, and I wasn't partaking in the marijuana part, but I was having some Bud Lights, I can guarantee you. And it prompted a discussion because a guy right there one of my 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 son's friends lit up a, a marijuana cigarette a joint and <laughs> i just sounded really old there a marijuana cigarette a joint a doobie okay a fatty i don't know you know somebody more hip out there carl help me out but <laughs> i just i heard myself say carl's laughing his ass off at me i heard myself say marijuana cigarette and i said okay yeah i'm old and, and completely uh unhip but anyways a dude lit up some marijuana all right and uh which is cool it's legal in in denver not a problem legal in colorado and, but it prompted a discussion because because I said you know by the way you know, if anybody cares much about your Second Amendment rights you know you need to think about using marijuana and, and everybody there looked at me like I was crazy what are you talking about it's legal in Colorado I understand it's legal in Colorado here's how this works marijuana remains an illegal drug according to the federal government notwithstanding Biden's pardon of all these people for having been convicted of possession of marijuana. It remains a Schedule One drug under something called the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. In fact, being a Schedule One drug, get this, and I'm not saying this makes any sense. I'm not saying there's any science to back it up. But what I'm telling you is a Schedule One drug in the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. Schedule One means, and again, uh, this is ludicrous to me, and knowing as little as I do about marijuana, I know some, and I know this is completely bogus, to make it to Schedule One, which are the most addictive, the most harmful, and the least beneficial drugs there are that are illegal under federal law. The, the, the DEA and the federal government have, have decided that the drug has a high potential for abuse, the drug has no currently accepted medical treatment in the U.S. We know that's a lie when it comes to marijuana. A whole lot of folks are prescribing marijuana, everything from PTSD to joint pain. There are, there are any number. Glaucoma. I mean, there are a ton of medical applications for marijuana. But the federal government says, right or wrong, high potential for abuse, no currently accepted medical treatment in the U.S., 
and a lack of accepted safety for use under medical supervision. Those are the criteria for a drug to be a Schedule One drug. You know what else is a Schedule One drug? Heroin, LSD, ecstasy, mescaline, peyote. I might disagree with that one, too. Not from personal experience, but just from what I know. Think about that. Heroin and marijuana are both Schedule One drugs. LSD. Federal government's telling you they're comparable. Because marijuana remains a scheduled drug in the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, it is illegal under federal law. Then you ought to ask yourself the question, well, hold on. Why is this idiot on the radio telling me it's illegal when I know all these states have legalized it and those people in those states don't get arrested? That's because the federal government in the form of the Department of Justice came out and said, you know what, we think it's a low priority to prosecute anyone or even arrest anyone for violation of the Controlled Substances Act of 1970 for merely using marijuana. So we're no longer going to prosecute these people. We're no longer going to arrest them. So as a matter of choice, the federal government is simply not enforcing federal law when it comes to marijuana. A whole bunch of people have these old convictions, nonetheless, and that's what Biden is now pardoning. But what happens if you live in a state where marijuana is legal or you live in a state where it's not and you are proven to be a marijuana user? Does that have any effect on your Second Amendment rights? This is what you need to know. This is especially what you need to know here in Indiana if, in fact, we go forward and legalize marijuana at the state level like it's been legalized in so many other states. I'll guarantee you in January there are going to be multiple bills by both Republicans and Democrats in the Indiana General Assembly to legalize marijuana. What effect can that potentially have on your Second Amendment rights? That's what we're going to talk about next when we come back. We also have a bunch of callers. That was great. I put out the invitation to call, and you folks did. I love that. So we'll go to the phone lines as we continue the discussion as well. Join the discussion, 317-239-9393. This is Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. We're going to continue the discussion the effect of marijuana use, even if you've gotten a pardon from President Biden, even if you're in a state where marijuana use is legal at the state level, we'll get back to that discussion in just a bit. But in the meantime, we've had a, uh, several people call in. Let's go to the phone lines. We've got Joe. Joe, welcome to the Gun Guy Show, man. Hi. Um, I'm just a little off subject here. I was wanting to talk to you about the way the credit card companies are kind of clamping down on guns and Oh yeah, a lot of a lot of credit card companies won't even do business with you if you're a gun store or a firearms trainer. I've had that happen to me personally. That's why we've introduced legislation uh, to try to curb that, to provide disincentives for financial institutions who won't do business uh, with lawful Second Amendment related businesses. But I think you had a suggestion, Joe. Yeah, you could add to that because I'm old enough to remember when you got a. Uh, discount for using cash, especially gas stations. Right. Yeah. Credit cards. Credit card companies put an end to that. They put the put the strong arm on businesses because you know it costs them to use a credit card. It costs a retailer. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm, I I know that personally from my businesses. 
Now, I don't know if that can be done on the state level or not, but if we could ban that practice in addition to the other, you know, that would add to it. Oh, so you're saying banning the uh, surcharge that a credit card company charges for using their credit card processing services? No, to keep them for the credit to keep the credit card companies from preventing retailers to uh, to give you a cash discount. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, well, Joe, thanks for your call. No, I mean um, credit card companies have no real pull on. Uh, on any incentive that a retailer wants to provide uh, for somebody using cash. Unless, I don't know, Joe may be aware of something there that I'm not aware of um, in terms of offering discounts um, because merely that's not paying the surcharge that a lot of credit card companies want to apply. Um, but I don't know. I, I may be uninformed on, on what Joe's talking about here because um, I'm not aware of how a credit card company could prevent a private business from offering a cash discount. Good question. Something we'll look more into. But in the meantime, I can tell you that the issue Joe's raising is very real. And I've talked about it a number of times here on the Gun Guy Show. There are financial institutions out there that have closed accounts of, for instance, friends of mine who were firearms instructors who got a check in the mail, a certified check from their bank saying, we no longer want to do business with you. Here's a check for your balance. Your accounts are closed. No explanation. He called and go, what do you mean my accounts are closed? Why don't you want to do business with me? It turns out it was simply because he's a firearms instructor. Guy's a cop. No criminal history whatsoever. Credit card company won't do business with him. The, the one uh, credit card processing company called Square will not do business with you if your business has anything to do with firearms. So it's a real problem, and getting around that um, is exactly what Joe's talking about, and I'm glad he called. Let's go back to the phone lines. We've got our pal Kelly and Avon. Kelly, welcome back to the Gun Guy Show, buddy. Hey, uh, Guy, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Oh, um, I, I will say I was glad you set the bar kind of high tonight, you know, uh, sober, sane, and interesting. I managed to get by uh, <laughs> producer Carl tonight. But, yeah. uh, well, you got past Carl, so I mean, it's looking good for you so far, Kelly. Yeah, it's, you were talking about uh, stats and studies earlier, so that kind of kind of draws me like I'm off to a flame here. There's one I was reading, I went through, it was about 48 pages, the whole study was, and that was rather painful to go through. Out of uh, Georgetown University, uh, William English is the professor's name there, and uh, did a study of gun owners. And it was definitely the most extensive study I think it's ever been done. It was 16,708 gun owners by the time they got done, and it was that started with 54,000 people contacted. And it deals with uh, uh, uses, you know, self-defense. Oh, yeah. And, and also the significant number that are a shot isn't fired. This was uh, 82% mm-hmm. and showed 1.6 million um, uh, self-defense involving a firearm every year. And so had some uh, had some very good numbers in that study. And because uh, he had said it had been 25 years since any kind of a study like that had been done. And this was significant um, with over 16,000, uh, the one it was um, Gary Kleck, and yeah. I think Gertz was the other guy. Yeah, Kleck and Gertz, and that's the one from about 25 years ago. That's the one that said it was up to as many as 2.5 million a year. Yeah, that was uh, this study actually was um, 
over twice the population in it. That's I think beautiful. they had around 7,500. So, uh, yeah, definitely I'm, I'm going to go, go through the painfully go through all 48 pages again. But, yeah, I'm thinking there, there's definitely some uh, for when the uh, Nance v. State uh, yeah. decision gets corrected. There's definitely some uh, good information here to be uh, used when that uh, hopefully comes up in the House this year. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> well, and Kelly, you're the right guy to be uh, plodding through that data, and uh, and I always screw it up. Whenever I call you a statistician, you always correct me and, and, and say what? I am a management analyst. That is a statistician with people skills. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And I tell you, though, when uh, Dr. Lott was at the State House last year, uh, I think I was the one day I wasn't the biggest nerd in the room that day. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kelly, as always, thanks for calling, man. And this is a big deal. The study that, that Kelly's talking about from Georgetown, and I was going to get to this a little bit later in the show, but uh, but he, he's, he's much more skilled at, at discussing those kinds of, of statistical issues than I am. And, uh, and, and that is that there's always a debate about whether law-abiding citizens really have any positive effect uh, on society or on crime or on violence, you know, by carrying guns in public. And uh, Kleckengertz is the is study that, that people go back to, and they found as many as 2.5 million times a year a law-abiding citizen prevents a crime with a firearm. And interestingly enough, a very high percentage of those, and we're talking about 80 90%, and Kelly referred to this as well in this more recent study, uh, in those situations, that they prevent a crime, but they never pull the trigger. There's no shots fired. In other words, if I'm a rapist... And I've got my eye on a particular victim, and I'm going to go abduct this person, throw her in the back of my my van, and 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 rape her. And as I walk up to her, she sees me approaching. She's got her situational awareness going. She she she's got her head on a swivel. She she sees this creepy dude walking toward her. She simply pulls a gun from a holster on her belt, or pulls a gun from her concealed carry purse. And I see the gun, and I go, whoop, it's a bad night to be a rapist. I think tonight I will not be a rapist, at least not any time in the foreseeable future. And I simply turn around and walk away. No shots fired. That's what we call a defensive gun use. And a crime has been prevented, and a crime was specifically prevented because of a firearm. And tracking that is very difficult, because what's the likelihood the police get called in that situation? What's the likelihood? 50-50? 80-20? 10-90? I mean, the vast majority of those, because no shot was fired, no crime was committed, the police don't ever hear about it. it do, it's not tracked statistically. It's not tracked as far as, 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 far as, as public records go. So how do you get to those numbers? Because that happens over and over. I have people talk to me, people who have taken my gun classes, will call me and say, oh, man, yeah. You know, my wife and I were walking on the circle. We had a couple people walking toward us, and we, we, we sensed them make eye contact with two people who were walking behind us, right on the circle. I had this story told to me recently. And we realized there are two people walking up on us from behind. There are two people walking at, at us from the front. They're, they apparently are making eye contact. And the gentleman said, I just took my jacket and swept it back and put it behind my holster, exposing the handgun on my hip. Didn't put hand on the gun, didn't pull the gun, didn't shoot the gun. And the guys in front went, whoa, did a 180, did an about face, 
decided not to be a mugger in that situation. At least that was his impression under the circumstance. Do you call the police in that instance? No, nobody committed a crime. Nobody attempted to commit a crime. But you, did, did you prevent a crime from occurring because you were carrying a handgun? Very, very, very likely. How do you track that? Well, that's why some of these studies, and this is exactly what Kelly's talking about in this New Georgetown study, and this is what the Kleck and Gertz study did, is they call people, they ask people, because you can't go to public records and get to those numbers. And that's why the anti-gun people go, oh, this never happens. Good guy with a gun never happens. You know, my client, Eli Dickens, saves countless lives, dozens and dozens of lives in the Greenwood Mall. And people still want to attack him and try to discount what he did. Guarantee you, he saved countless lives that day. Well, how do you count how many other people did the same thing with a firearm, but without a shot being fired? That's the kind of study that Kelly and Avon's talking about. And that study was up to 1.5 million times a year. You want to restrict guns? You want to restrict law-abiding citizens from carrying guns? How do you get around that? People want to talk about the number of, of, of gun-related homicides every year. That's significant. We ought to reduce that. We ought to cut that down. One way to do that is, oh, say, allow law-abiding citizens to defend themselves, just as Eli Dickin did in the Greenwood Park Mall on July 17th. Big damn deal, and I'm glad Kelly mentioned that study because it's very important. We're past the bottom of the hour. Carl's giving me the death stare to get off the air here for right now. We're taking a break. We'll come back and continue to take your calls. We've got several other people who have called in, including Karen, who's got an interesting question, something I was actually going to get to later in the show as well. So we'll take your calls. Join the discussion, 317-239-9393. We'd love for you to join the show, 239-9393. Give us a call. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. I'm going to wrap up the discussion on the effects of marijuana use or possession on gun ownership here in just a bit. But in the meantime, Karen's been on hold for quite some time, and I will go right to the phone lines. Uh, Karen, thanks for your patience so much. We're glad you called. Well, sure. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I have a son. Can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, I have a son who's 20 years old, and he wants to buy and own his own handgun. Uh-huh. So I kind of want to tell him, like, you know, give him some sites or some information or some sort of education on so that he can learn about proper gun ownership and when he can actually use it and how he can carry it and stuff like that. Is there any sort of information you can point me to to learn about all that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely, Karen, and thanks so much for calling. And, uh, in fact, I, I, I need to slip you a 20 next time I see you because that's a perfect lead-in to my gun law class. Um, you know, I teach this class that I pitch here on the show called Essentials of Indiana Gun Law. The next one's coming up in less than a month on November 5th. And it's exactly the kind of stuff you're talking about, which is where you can carry, where you can't, when you can lawfully use a gun, when you can point a gun at someone. You know, we have a crime in Indiana called pointing a firearm. And it's a level six felony if that gun's loaded. Well, there are only sometimes that there are exceptions to the crime of pointing a firearm. And then, obviously, when can you and can you not use deadly force? And a good way of thinking is that if you're using a gun, it's deadly force. That's a little overbroad. But we have a court of appeals decision, and my buddy Kelly referred to this earlier during his call, that even pointing a loaded gun at someone, according to the Indiana Court of Appeals in the Nance versus State case, is the use of deadly force by merely pointing a gun at someone. And so when is that justified and when it's not? 
So I don't know any, of anywhere else. And, 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 and hey, full disclosure, I'm self-interested in, in giving you this answer, Karen. Uh, but I don't know anywhere else that in four hours, four and a half hours, you can get that kind of information other than, than my class, Essentials of Indiana Gun Law. There are some books out there, but those are largely obsolete. The law has changed so dramatically, including with constitutional carry. It just went into effect July 1 that there aren't really any, any publications out there where, where they can get that. Uh, beyond that, you know, he ought to... Uh, you got to talk to experienced gun owners, uh, take a class or two on on safe gun handling, on marksmanship. Um, and you ought to handle and shoot as many guns as possible in a controlled environment, uh, preferably with an instructor or someone else who's experienced handling and shooting guns and decide what he's most comfortable with. What's a little silly is that as a 20-year-old, he can't buy a handgun from a dealer. Under federal law, you have to be 21 to buy a handgun from a dealer. He can buy a handgun uh, from a private individual, or you as a parent could buy a gun and gift it to him. That's legal, as long as he's not otherwise prohibited from possessing a firearm for reasons other than simply his age. So um, that's kind of a short answer, and we could talk about that really the rest of the show, Karen. But um, he had to get uh, some instruction, and uh, and on the laws, uh, he couldn't. Uh, he couldn't make a wiser decision than come take my gun law class on November 5th. And I say that, one, because I'm pitching the class, but I say it in all honesty because I put that class together specifically to provide in a condensed format exactly that kind of information. That somebody can come, spend a morning, and boom, you've got that essential legal information that you need. Uh, so I uh, appreciate the opportunity to continue pitching that class in pure self-interest. Let's go back to the phone lines before we take a break. And uh, John, you've got a question? Yes, hi, Guy. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for calling on me. Sure. Uh, I, I admire you uh, because and started listening to you because of how you have dealt with the harassment that comes from Hammer and Nigel. So that's fantastic. <laughs> so I love those guys. And I mean, I'm, I'm hosting with Hammer tomorrow, man, for four hours. So I'll be right there in the middle yeah. of all that abuse. But no, I, I, I appreciate you saying that, John. Yeah. Well, here's my here's my question. Uh -huh. Look, I was in an I was I was in an accident about um, three months ago, and it uh, it's pretty much determined that it's my fault, and it, it created some serious bodily injury on someone who's actually recovered. Uh, my attorney has told me that uh, if, if I'm convicted of a felony, I'm going to have to turn in my, I have two handguns and uh, some shotguns I inherited from my father. So is that the case? I mean, I, I can go on just a, a little bit more. The reason why I bought them was because I have a special needs son who's defenseless. He yeah. can't walk. And if someone breaks into my home, I want to be able to defend him. And if we're out in public, if I'm taking him somewhere and someone's approaching me, us, we can't run away. We can't flee. So that's why I bought the handguns. So anyway. Yeah, no, John, I, I get it. I am the stepfather of a, a profoundly disabled uh, young lady, my, my stepdaughter. Um, 
and so I understand the special needs circumstance. Um, and I was a gun owner long before I became her stepfather. But believe me, I empathize with that situation. It is a true statement to say that if you have any felony conviction, felonies defined as a crime for which you could be sentenced to over a year, not what you are sentenced to, but what the maximum penalty for that particular crime is, if it's over a year, that's a felony. And it is an accurate statement to say that a person convicted of any felony, violent, non-violent, involving personal injury or otherwise, any felony conviction uh, prevents you from possessing a firearm. That's under federal law. If you want to look it up, it's 18 U.S.C. 922-G1. And that's a, a person convicted of any crime punishable by over a year cannot possess a firearm. So, yeah, and that's why uh, a lot of folks who are accused of crimes um, and are accused of felonies fight them very hard or attempt very hard to get a plea agreement where they can reduce it down to a misdemeanor. Or um, they, there's something else called alternative misdemeanor sentencing where you could potentially get convicted of a low-level felony but have it sentenced as a misdemeanor under alternative misdemeanor sentencing so that you don't have that felony conviction on your record that prevents you from possessing a firearm. If that happens... After eight years with a clean criminal history, uh, you can expunge uh, a felony conviction. I do those all the time. I met with a gentleman today uh, at my office uh, this morning who's, where, who's hired me to do a felony expungement. He's had for 20-some years on his record. We're going to expunge that conviction and restore his gun rights. But, yes, it is true, unfortunately, John, that if you're convicted of a felony, you become a prohibited possessor and cannot possess a firearm. Uh, and that's anywhere in your home. Uh, in a vehicle, in public, or otherwise, you, you simply cannot possess a firearm, period, end of the story. All right, well, we'll pass the three-quarter hour. We'll take a break. Come back. We'll wrap up the discussion on marijuana and gun ownership, given President Biden's announcement this week. He's pardoning all these marijuana, uh, these people who have marijuana-related convictions, I should say. But we'll wrap things up when we come back. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. And... And welcome back for the last segment here of the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Uh, we're glad you're here with us uh, for the show. We've got a little bit of a short segment, but I'm going to wrap this up because this is prompted by Biden's, President Biden, need to show respect for the office if not the man, uh, President Biden's announcement, he's pardoning all these people that have convictions for marijuana-related offenses. And he thinks nobody should be in jail for simple possession of marijuana. Well, okay. President Biden, call on Congress to take marijuana off the Schedule One list of illegal drugs in the in the federal statute that defines what laws or, or what drugs, I should say, are illegal and are illegal. I'm talking about the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. Marijuana is a Schedule One drug, meaning it's, according to the feds, and this is ridiculous, is one of the most addictive and the least medically beneficial. In fact, no acknowledged medical benefits according to the scheduling criteria, which is ludicrous. So make it, make it, make it a legal drug, just like they have in so many states. Because until then, here's the problem. Until then, if it's illegal at the federal level, if the feds ever want to, they can label you, in fact, prosecute you as a prohibited possessor simply because you use marijuana. Don't believe me? Next time you go buy a gun, look at question 21E on the form you fill out 
when you're buying a gun called the 4473 form. It's an ATF form. ATF Form 4473. You answer a number of questions. Like, for instance, have you ever been convicted of a crime for which you could have been sentenced to more than a year? That's a felony. You go down to subsection E, and it says, are you an unlawful user of or addicted to marijuana or any depressant, stimulant, narcotic drug, or any other controlled substance? Warning, and here, this is specifically called out, the use of or possession, let me start that over, the use or possession of marijuana remains unlawful under federal law regardless of whether it has been legalized or decriminalized for medicinal or recreational purposes in the state where you reside. Take that to heart. And I'm not advocating against marijuana use. Some of my very best friends use marijuana. God bless them. I don't think it should be illegal, but it is. And as long as it remains illegal at the federal level, the federal government has the capacity to strip you of your Second Amendment rights and, in fact, put you in jail for exercising your Second Amendment rights merely because you use, you use marijuana even in a state where marijuana is otherwise legal. That includes Indiana if we were to legalize marijuana this next legislative session. Note to self, that's not an argument against marijuana. That's an argument against decrimi- against criminalizing it at the federal level. And with that, that's this week's show. We hope you enjoyed it. hope you come back next week. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC.